0: So this is The Red Center, a podcast about The Handmaid's Tale. I'm Laura June. I'm Rose Eveleth. Today we have a very special bonus episode of the
1: show, but warning, we have a guest, and he's a man. No! <laughs> but today, today we're really excited to be joined by Bruce Miller, who is the creator of The Handmaid's Tale. He is here and he's assured us that he's going to, ask, uh, to answer all of our exciting questions. So uh, thank you for coming, Bruce.
2: Uh, it's my pleasure to be here.
0: Um, so I think well we have a list of questions, and I think this first one is probably the potentially the one you get asked the most, but I think it's also really interesting. So I mean, one of the things that has been talked about a lot in general, and we talked about on the show, is that this uh show feels very timely at this point in in the world. Um but yeah, sorry why, about that. <laughs> um why this show now? I mean, like when you started, did you realize that it would feel so or so, like you know, timely, or, or was it a surprise to you?
2: It was really a surprise to me. I mean, uh, when I started, it was when I started working on the script. Uh, it was before the elections had begun, before the primaries had even really begun. So I didn't have any uh, sense that so many of the issues that that we were talking about in the show would be right there, you know, on the front pages, right there in front of everybody's face, but. I do have to say that that it feels more like the the same things in America that we were trying to reflect in the show were the same things that kind of came out. Uh, some of that stuff was stuff that came out during the election, so the, I don't think it, I think it wasn't like uh, the election and the show were were reacting to such different. Uh, currents in the culture, it felt like they were acting the same thing, so maybe I should' have seen it coming, but it really did uh, it surprises me I mean it surprised me when anybody watched it all so that's that's just the way that's just the way writers are.
1: I think you know one of the things that I think about with uh it's sort of related to this, which is sort of a why this now question is um I feel I know nothing about making a film or television, but i I do know that a lot of my favorite books have been adapted in ways that are um, that I have disagreed with a lot, and so I feel like as a as a person who makes film or television um, adapting something this classic or iconic or beloved seems like a very terrifying prospect to me. so how did you? How did you pick the project, and how did you approach it? Sort of knowing that people would have a lot of strong feelings about what every decision that you made.
2: Uh, I, I absolutely. <laughs> it is terrifying, um, yeah. and and uh, uh, it should never stop being terrifying. Uh, you know, you you when when you take on a book to adapt, usually uh, the book you, you're you're not you're taking a piece or a character or a situation and you're not trying to bring the book to life in the same way we are with Handmaid's Tale. Uh, We're trying to capture the flavor of the book and the book experience and that storytelling experience. And because usually the books that you adapt, you know, uh, stink. I mean, so you're, you're, this is a great book. And so you really want to capture that feeling, that greatness on TV. So it is terrifying. I think, um, I, I, I had two, two things that really were playing in my favor, One was that, um, I, I was you, I, you know, I I didn't want to see the ruined version of this either. I was a, you know, for a very long time, I was just a fan of the book and waiting for the TV show to come out. I would have been very happy to, you know, watch and, and be entertained. So when, when the, when the original writer who is, was Eileen shaken, um, had to go off and do something else and they were looking for a showrunner, um, uh, I, I, went into it with the idea of my first and foremost not to piss myself off not right. you know, not to make something that was going to disappoint me um and then the other big thing I think is is the weakness which is i'm a man and going you know you know uh attacking this material as a as a man is is uh you know you, you feel like there's lots of parts of the story that I understand and there's lots of parts of the story that I'm just not going to understand but recognizing that just deficit that I have uh, with this particular project you focus on it a lot more you focus on every decision that you're making um, and am I making a you know there's a scene at the beginning of the first episode where you know there's a car driving down the road and then it crashes and you know Luke and June get out and then they get Hannah out I I spent 48 hours trying to figure out if I was just being a sexist asshole by having him drive
1: <laughs> well at least he, at least he wrecked <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, leasty wreck. But yeah, but then are you telling the other story? If you have her drive, is it like oh, that's so you know? But I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Was it a default answer? And then I was like, well, you know, Hannah is there in the back seat. What you know? But you know, when my wife and I drive, we've never been fleeing. You know, a totalitarian regime. <laughs> but when we go on long Yet. drives, it was, she tends to drive. So I went back and forth for a long time. But you just you, it made me question every single little tiny assumption, every look, every move, every, you know, it's like, uh, when, when, um, June is carrying, uh, Hannah in the woods and she isn't running very fast. And then she, you know, wipes out and falls down. Is that just, you know, uh, another sexist TV trope? Uh, but seeing Lizzie try to carry, uh, Jordana in the woods, you know, Jordana who weighs, you know, Lizzie who's tiny, you know, and and Jordana, who you know is a big kid, it was very hard for her to carry, and she almost wiped out a million times because it's rough ground, and you're carrying a a kid, and your weight's all off balance, and uh, so you know you have to examine all those things. So that ended up being one of the things for me, at least, that made me more comfortable with the process because I was asking questions about everything. I wasn't taking anything for granted because I felt like here as a man and with this job. Um, I should uh, surround myself with, with questions and with people who are good at answering them and nice and stubborn and abstract, ob- yes, how do you pronounce that word? You know, crabby.
0: <laughs> when you get stuck on something like that, when you sort of have that moment where you're like, oh, God, is this like really what I want to do or is this just sort of an assumption that I'm making because of, you know, who I am or what I've sort of been indoctrinated by? I mean, are you bouncing that kind of question off people? Are you asking, like, how do you kind of get through that and how do you kind of like talk that out?
2: Well, it depends. I mean, it depends on what it is. I mean, in this case, it was, uh, uh, you know, it was the appearance of of making a, a gender decision, you know, not really a gender decision. It was, you know, is this just a default for television or is this the way real life works? If it's the way real life works and it happens to be something, you know, sexist that we do in our lives all the time, I, I don't mind. I want it to be real life. I don't, I'm not trying to create a, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, gender blind world. I'm just trying to reflect the world as it is. I'm just trying not to make assumptions, but, but so things like that, like how is how it appears, am I just doing the default, uh, TV thing? And, and I don't want to do that, but when it's something about uh, the, the, the real difficulty comes in with very specific emotional, societal, um, things that are experienced by women very differently than men as you know, and, and by off-red specifically, because you're never making a show about women in general, you're making a show about June. Um, and so, uh, things like, what does it feel like to get your period? What, um, which, which, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I certainly, you know, I've been married for 23 years. I've you know been around for a lot of menstrual cycles, but I don't know. And so you have to ask and really ask. So you have to have a room full of writers who are uh, open and trusting and thoughtful and are willing to fight things out with each other, because the answer is never, you know, if I asked you guys, you know, how does it feel when you get your period? You guys would have two different answers. There's no yeah, universe. I love
1: it. I love it. <laughs> it's great. Um, so
2: that's, that's what, um, and you guys can talk about that as much as you want. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so, so I, I think a lot of it is kind of really looking, looking at, uh, the internal workings of, of June. And when you come up against something that you really don't have any analog for, I mean, besides, you know, systematic, you know, periodic raping, which I also don't have any analog for, uh, you know, the, the, you, you, you try to ask questions. You just, you just try not to be shy about it. Um, you know, it's, it's, I spend most of my life asking questions, so I don't worry about feeling like a dummy, uh, because part of my job is to be a dummy and, and get answers. So, uh, you know, that, that's kind of how I approached it. And, it, you know, it's just, I looked at it, I, I didn't look at it as some sort of, um, reinvention of television storytelling, you know, based on, you know, uh, based on some sort of, uh, new paradigm. I was just looking at it. Whenever I get a job on a television show, I try to buttress my weaknesses and, in this case, being a man was a weakness. So I had to buttress it. But if I was on a show that was about the law or, or, you know, I was on ER for a while, you know, certainly I wasn't writing the medicine. We had people there who were experts. So it, it, it it's, it's, there's, there's always places in shows where I feel weak. Um, and I just don't have the experience. And so I hope, uh, I'm smart enough to bring in people who are not just, uh, know those things, but are good at talking about them in a way that I'm going to understand.
1: I have heard from a few people that have watched the show. Very few, but a few. Um, some like version of I really, I really don't see this happening. But I think it was Rose who pointed out or asked the question of whether or not they were all men, and they <laughs> they, they were. Um, <laughs> and now that you've worked on this, and I mean, obviously it's a, it's a piece of fiction. We know that there are some. Uh, real issues that it deals with, but it's still sort of an alternate reality construction. Do you feel like you look at the world differently now that you're working on this? Because I feel like, I mean, honestly, the show, I I love it so much, but it has like, it was really pressing to watch. I don't, I don't mean depressing. I mean, it was like pressing on my mind as I was watching it. And so I imagine like making it is very emotional. There's so many things about it that are emotional. And I, it's not even just that I feel attached to the characters, but I feel like it seems like the way it, it happens is so everyone's sort of so taken aback by it. What do you see as like the parallels between how we live and how those things happen versus like this art that you're making?
2: Um, well, I, I don't know. I certainly I, I don't know enough about I'm no predictor of the the world. So I mean, c- could this happen? i I don't see America as um, a I, I think uh, totalitarian theocracies are rare um, you know, just in general, and they they don't g- generally happen in a country as big as ours that doesn't have a history of being that particular kind of government. Uh, but who knows? I mean, Iran was a huge country, and people were wearing miniskirts to college, and the next day they were wearing burqas. I mean, it, it does happen. Um, but uh, you know, and and I think we have lots of things to worry about. I don't know if this would be the first one on the list, a totalitarian state. But the thing that that I do see is that you, you see the I see the natural extrapolation of kind of just day, like you know, daily sexism, daily misogyny, things you don't even notice. And that's what, I'm, that's what i has become very, I've been much more sensitive to through the show. Right. Just, you extrapolate out from little things that people do what the end game of, of a world where that was a truth, you know, as you know, uh, what a politician says, what you know, someone says to a woman on the street, just all sorts of different things you extrapolate much more to, to a societal version of that. Like what does it look like if you take someone whistling on the street and you say, "Okay, that person's in charge of the country"? What, is, what, what, what <laughs> okay. does the country look like? Um, I mean, that's what we, we kind of have, um, and so uh, in in the states right now. Um, so I, I don't I, I don't see this as kind of a something that's going to come down the pike. But in terms of, I, I have to say, I'm kind of a, a dopey optimist about a lot of this stuff. The show more than anything else makes me appreciate the messy world, uh, that, you know, you, you everything we complain about, you know, the, uh, seeing people, you know, half naked, the loud music, you know, the big messy arguments that everybody's having on TV, you know, the, you know, uh, Everything, the information we're getting out of the White House, they don't get any information out of anybody, you know, in Gilead. So it actually, in some ways, it makes you look out on on our messy world with all our problems and go and be, enjoy it and, and feel relieved that our world is messy, that it isn't perfectly neat and clean like Gilead is, and there's people hanging on walls dead.
0: In terms of this as, like, a season, and, and I think one of the things that both Laura and I, like, really appreciated was, like, how nicely contained that first season was uh, and how it ends. I was like yelling at my television. I was like, yes, yes. (laughs) I had a little moment. Um, I think I was watching it also like really early in the morning because we were going to (laughs) record something and it was like six o'clock in the morning and I was like yelling in my apartment. But I mean, it is like this this first season is really sort of like perfectly this capsule of the book and sort of like, you know, we've talked a lot about on our podcast about how it's so true to the book while also kind of expanding it out. Did you always, like, when you went into this, did you think there would only be one season or were you hoping to be, there, be, there would be a second season? Or, like, how are you thinking about kind of, like, those two units? Because that first season, I mean, it is a cliffhanger, but it's also such, like, a nice little end, too.
2: Yeah, because it's the end of the book. Um, when I went into to uh, the show, I, you know, and this is more of a TV thing than it is a particular Handmaid's thing. Uh, you know, I I always think... Of, okay, well, what could a second season, third season, tenth season be? Because if you happen to get successful, you don't want to be screwed. I mean, you don't want to. (laughs) There were were a lot of television (laughs) shows on in the last few years that had like a fantastic high, high, you know, concept pilot, and then they didn't go anywhere because there was nowhere to go. And so you never want to be in that position. So I'm always thinking. Um, you know, I have like a 200-episode rule in my head. Like, if I can think of 200 <laughs> episodes of the show, then then it's worth doing. So, uh, but, you know, I always thought, I loved the end of the book uh, as just from a narrative point of view, it felt so much like the end of a TV season because it answered all sorts of stuff. And it was really the end of a chapter, but it was just the beginning of all sorts of other stories. And so in some ways it, it was by, you know, by Margaret written in a way that lent itself beautifully to TV. Um, and what we, what I tried to do in the first season was add enough new stuff so that when, when you get to season two, you're not feeling like, Oh, all that stuff, from the book is over and now we're going to new territory. I wanted to ease you guys into stuff that was inspired by and not literally from the book. Um, but as, uh, I mean, I don't know how many interviews you've looked at or stuff, but, so I don't want to be repeating myself, but we didn't, we didn't change anything in the book unless we, without great thought, we didn't look at the book and it wasn't out of fealty to the, to the text. It was out of, Um, just respect for the way the story works and it really worked. So anything we changed, anything that was even slightly different, we said, okay, why are we changing this? What is the difference between what we're doing and what Margaret did? Because Margaret, thought it through rather carefully. Margaret's super smart, much smarter than I am. So you want to defer to that and luckily I was able to also talk to her about why she did X, Y, or Z. She was always much more open like open to different versions than I was. You know, she was like, oh, that sounds fun. And you're like, but 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 in the book because, you know, at some point she was throwing these ideas around. Uh so um it you know, we see have stuck close to the book, expanded out, but most of the things we expanded out are take something that's like a sentence of the book and turn it into something, or something mentioned in the book and turn it into an episode. And that we're going to continue through season two, mostly by expanding the world. There's all sorts of places in the book that I'm dying to visit. I mean, uh, you know, really, this show, most shows, but this show particularly, is driven by my personal curiosity. When I read the book, I was like, ooh, what are the colonies like? Now I get to you know, come (gasps) on. We get to see them? Yes. No,
1: I'm so excited. (laughs) This is literally the next question, which is that, you know, the book is so narrowly focused. I mean, like, literally everything that she sees is like, really narrowly focused and so the first season does expand on that like necessarily but also very beautifully a little bit and so the next question was like are we going to extend it further because that's sort of what i'm dying for like i remember in whatever it is episode seven or eight when we find luke i was like holy shit finally like i get to see canada and it doesn't suck as bad as i thought it might (laughs) um i was i was so relieved and it's also like Seeing the other parts of the world gives you this crazy sense that you're in, you know, that Gilead really is powerful, but so small that it makes, you know, it's this, like, release from the world that they're in. And so what are we going to see next season?
2: Uh, well, um Starting from kind of base principles, the show is only scary if it feels real, like it's the real yeah. world. Once once it starts feels like oh, robots would never do that, then you're not scared anymore. And so everything about the show, everything is to make it feel like real life. So every decision I make, writing dialogue, it's supposed to feel like real people talking. The way the you know the handmaid's costumes are look like real clothes; they can't look like costumes. Because then people don't wear costumes. they wear these clothes every day. The shoes are worn in in a certain way the way that you know you, you know if you have a favorite pair of shoes and you wear them every day, that's a very different wear pattern than if you change shoes. They have these one pair of boots, they wear them until they fall apart, then they get a new pair. Um, so and and you know we have there's subtle variations in in all the handmade costumes. The bottoms of the cloaks are are, were, are very worn because they'd be running on the ground and stuff. So all of those things are supposed to, uh, are are not just there so that, you know, there's a kind of, you know, I'm not being precise just for the sake of fun. It's there to make the world feel real and so that nothing bounces you out of the moment or out of the story. I, I, you know That's what I'm always looking for, is to grab you and hold you, because I love that in a TV show when I don't think about anything else at all. Um, so next season, I think we're going to try to, you know, absolutely, that's the, the one of the ruling factors. The other is we never do anything uh, that doesn't happen in real life. Margaret said that about the book, and we've taken that on. Just otherwise, it turns into torture pornography. I mean, it's so easy to come up with horrible things to do to people. Sure, you can sit around all day and come up with them, but but why? You know, that's just terrible. What you're trying to do is reflect on the things that are happening in your world. Um, I, I don't. Unfortunately, I don't need to go very far to find cruelties to put. You know, in Handmaid's Tale. Uh, But in season two, I think we're going to expand the world. Um, uh, There are lots of places mentioned in the book and in the uh, after notes, the the historical notes at the end of the book, that we haven't gotten a chance to look at yet, which I'm very excited to do. Um, But in terms of character points of view... um, it really is The Handmaid's Tale, and it really is, you know, Elizabeth Moss. Um, and one of the things I love about the book is that limited perspective, because it ends up being the scariest part. Like, you know, Offglen disappears, and Offred in the book has no fucking way to find out what happened to her. Yeah, I mean, no, no not at all. She can't ask anybody. She, she has no—we're so used to having information that, I mean, you take away my kid's phone— in my phone, probably, and you know, have an anxiety attack. Think about taking away the whole internet, taking away, you know, you're you're reduced down. So that level of point of view, that small point of view, I love that about the book. And so I've been careful. I I don't want to expand the world too far beyond Alfred's circle. So right. the the rule of thumb with the flashbacks for me, and 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 excuse me, and the other character flashbacks is it's it's flashbacks that affect Offred. There are things that are in her, like, for example, one of the great things you realize is that Serena Joy and the commander have a fight. That's Offred's problem. That's June's problem, which is ridiculous, but that's the way the world works. So flashbacks about the commander and Serena Joy impact, or, you know, I I hate using impact as a verb, but impact June. And, um, so you, you, we're continuing that, and so that's kind of how our world expands. I don't want to, for example, I don't think I would go uh, tell a story about um, Emily off Glen, and then tell a story about someone Emily knows who doesn't have any connection to Offred, doesn't have any connection back to to um, to June. So I think it's one of those things. You know, you go one spoke out in the circle, but I'm not comfortable going another spoke out. Yeah, I want everything to be focused back on on The Handmaid.
0: Um, Elizabeth Moss, I mean, everyone in the show is, is great. Like, I, I think, you know, M- Madeline Brewer is maybe my favorite. Uh, <clears throat> but, I mean, Samira Wiley's amazing. Like, the casting is really, really good. And everyone in it is is really compelling and um, just, like, they're awesome. All,
2: they're all killing it. I'm with you.
0: They totally are. Um, and I just, yeah, I just am, like, very impressed. It's um, very
2: but, fun to be on set and watch them do it. It's like... <laughs> watching someone it's like being really close up to watch two people play chess at a really high level it's amazing yeah like a master class yeah
0: <laughs> did you always know that elizabeth moss was like the perfect offred or like was that clear from the beginning or can you talk a little bit more about like the like casting and working with these people
2: um, well, we 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 cloned Elizabeth Moss and we grew her for this part. Um, it, was a long, it was a long process, but um, it was worth it. You know, we started 34 years ago. Uh,
0: it's the Westworld Handmaid's Tale crossover.
2: Yes, yes, that's that's the crossover. Um, you see Elizabeth Moss come out of that tank. So um, I uh, I generally don't think of actors when I'm writing at all because I'm trying to write a character, and if you start thinking about actors, you start kind of just taking other characters that they've played, so I generally I think about June and Offred. I don't think about an actor. So when I was writing the, I, I initially I wrote the pilot in the first the first three episodes, and and that's when we started to look seriously for our lead. Um, and really, you know, you know, uh, you start by thinking about parameters. And in this case, if if you miscast Offred, if you miscast June that's it. You might as well not make a TV show. Um, so you have to be sure that you're making the right decision, but there's also other parameters. Like you want someone who has a lot of experience in TV, because when you take on a role this big, the Lizzie worked so hard, I can't even express to you how hard she worked the hours that she worked on this show. Uh, I mean, I've never seen anybody work that ho- work that many hours, and she was wonderful. And but she knew how to do it because she's been on, she's been in film and TV since she was seven or eight years old. Having an actor of her age with that much experience is incredibly rare. She's very young to be that experienced. So there were some practical things that I thought about when I was thinking about what kind of character. But I, I mean, I love Wizzy's acting style. I love her range. I've seen her in a million different things, movies. She's in a ton of movies that you don't even think about. She's and, but it was the range of her performance that made me think that to, to look at her more closely. And then, um, I'm, uh, you know, uh, I'm friends with Matt Weiner from Mad Men. And, and I remember when he was looking at for, for casting Mad Men. And so I, I we talked about her performance on Mad Men, but, You know, as soon as her name came up, I couldn't think of anybody else. And I was very glad she said yes, because there's always always that possibility they don't see it the way you do. Um, But, you know, it worked out quite smoothly. I mean, I, I, I can't, and now I can't even imagine. After the first day, I couldn't even imagine. What, at the first day of shooting, I couldn't even imagine anybody else. She just slid right into it. And it wasn't offered from the book. She created a new one. But she's, you know, with a little more snark and a little more uh, kind of, you know, internal uh, fire and insulting voice, uh, a little more rebellious on the inside than the one in the book, than than offered in the book. But it, I don't know. I mean, I I can't even imagine anybody else doing the role. Everything about Lizzie, from you know, her height to her makeup to, which there's no none of, by the way. Uh, you know, all of those things combined, her bravery, her amazing kind of just how you can see every thought go across her face, all that stuff worked out perfectly. I'm You know, I'm thrilled that it worked out, but it definitely was something as I, I thought it would work out because I, sh- I think she's amazing. And that's uh, so, so, you know, I feel like, oh, yeah, okay, it worked out. Of course, it was going to work out for Elizabeth Moss, for God's sake.
1: <laughs> one one thing that it happens in the last episode, which is different from the book. Um, I was sort of I have a I have a daughter. Uh, you probably know this if you've ever listened to the podcast. I talk about her all the time.
2: I've listened um, to every episode of the.
1: Podcast. Oh, you have really? Oh, oh my god! god. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm I, so sorry. I hate, <laughs> um, one thing that like reading the book and then watching the show, which I think you did really beautifully in the show, without her ever really being in the show present day until the last moment is um, constant sort of reference to the fact that June has a daughter and that that's pretty much her stated reason for staying alive. Um, that seems right. pretty obvious to me. That the entire driving... Force of her existence in such a dreadful reality is that she needs to save her daughter, who she sor- sort of assumes is alive, but she is not. She wants to her. stay
2: alive, and she wants to stay sane. She wants to have yes. something to offer her right. daughter when it's all over.
1: Yeah, right. And so, all season, I sort of waited for this moment. There's a moment that happens very at the very end of the book, where she finds out that her daughter is alive. It's basically a. Um, gift that Serena Joy gives her in the book. She shows her... Sort of she, a gift. Sort of, right? But it's a... It's Such a, a
2: twisted gift, yeah.
1: Right. And um, you do it a little bit differently in the in the episode. Um, and I think the reason... I, I want to hear why you did it, but I want to say first that um, since we're talking about Elizabeth Moss, um, the moment in, that when they leave after she's completely freaking out because she's locked in the car... Um, where, you know, Serena Joy, instead of getting into the back, gets into the front seat with, like, the police glass between it. Not only was it a really cathartic moment, um, because I think everyone watching it has felt this about Serena Joy so many times, because she sort of, like, teeters between... And and also, um, the actress who plays her... Is it Yvonne?
2: Yeah, Yvonne Is, Tarkowski.
1: like, is amazing, because it's, like, She's very... St-
2: amazing. Off the it's charts, amazing. It's amazing. You know, she yeah. was on Chuck. I mean, you can't even... Uh, I mean, it, it, you know, she was, has always played these kind of, you know, beautiful ass kickers and here she is just, oh my God, she's terrifying. And so yeah, such a ball of res- restrained fury. It's like, oh my God, she's,
1: yeah, and I think she plays her in a way where I've verged on like sympathy for her so many times. I know. Isn't that
2: amazing? I don't know how she does it's it. It's
1: evil. It's really evil. <laughs> That's why I captured her, it.
2: because she came in and did an audition, and I was like, oh, my God, I feel sorry for Serena Joy. That's impossible.
1: It is. It's a really interesting – I mean, you know, I, I think that it's such a complicated character um, in the book and in in the show that she really plays – so beautifully, but the, the 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 dynamic between the two of them, between Serena Joy and Alfred, is like completely monstrous. And there's always you always have you you always are rooting for June, but um, like I said, you you always you all, you occasionally verge on sympathy for Serena Joy. And I thought I thought that scene, which is not in the book, um, is. It's just so monstrous but feels so good to watch it happen. <laughs> and so why why did you change that? That's basically the only scene in in the in the show where I'm like this is so it's like part wish fulfillment but also just completely brilliant and is not in in the source material. I I love it so much.
2: Um well, uh thank you. I mean, I <laughs> I it it was an ex- it really was kind of a a a television, a a television, more visual version of the photograph, um, in, in some ways when I, but having read the book, I, I've read it a few times now, having read the book a few times and really teasing that moment apart, I found it like the motives behind it were so interesting. It's like, what the fuck is Serena Joy doing? Why is she showing her this? What's the, you know, what's the story here? And and is it a threat? Is it, you know, what is it? And so it seemed to me like that moment uh, had a lot of complicated stuff behind it. And I, I, in the book, I think she shows her the moment before she sleeps with, she throws, shows her the picture before she sleeps with Nick. So since it comes at a different place in the book, it has a different impact. I moved it so that it's after she finds out she's pregnant um, so that... Uh, you know, then it had kind of a transactional meaning for Serena Joy, which is just, you know, this is insurance, so you don't hurt my kid. And in that way, this felt like a much more, uh, th- th- it just, it felt like uh, a way to make it feel, make you feel the moments more, the parts of it, make you feel why Serena does it, make you feel how it would feel for, for um, Glenn. I mean, or excuse me, for Alfred. In the book, you know, June looks at the picture, kind of tears apart the picture, but there's none of that kind of emotional rush that I felt like I was missing that. I wanted to get the feeling of, because I feel that, I mean, I have three kids. I feel June's hunger to get her, to get to Hannah and to get that close. I also just thought it was a, a, you know, just a wonderfully cruel thing for Serena to do, um... And since she's kind of in a space of she wants that baby and she's so jealous of, of June that she can have the baby and that she had her other, this other baby, it felt like a little bit of uh, an opportunity to kind of hit her in a, in a way that was going to knock her to her knees for Serena to keep a, keep, keep a control over, over June, which is what she's always trying to get to do. And then honestly, I thought it'd be awesome. I mean, I, I, you, you, I, it's Elizabeth Moss and it's and it's Yvonne, and they're great together. And I didn't want to have them sitting talking over a photograph. I wanted them to be in a real place. And also for, I mean, good God, that scene is just—it's amazingly powerful. And I was trying to find, as I often do, just take take a simple idea and try to find the most powerful version of it, and don't don't gussy it up or paint it over. And this just seemed like the most straightforward way to do it. And I just really liked the "as long as my baby is safe, your baby is safe." It made it made a lot of sense to me for what for what Serena would want to do, what why she would do this. Uh, and the swearing part was just delicious, and, <laughs> it's and <so> good. <laughs> it, it was great. And it was very tough to write. I wrote that script, so it was really hard to write because it's hard to write something that, by definition, should feel not written, and it can easily feel like just. Um, you know, like, like, you know, you're, you're just masturbating with profanity, but you you don't want to do that. What, what you want it to do is feel like just an eruption of rage and emotion from someone's mouth and where they don't kind of follow what they're saying, but they are saying specific things about this specific person. But when I wrote it, um, I sat down with Lizzie and, and we kind of had a discussion about whether, you know, whether I had captured that or not. And we decided that if she could do it, if she could memorize it and do it without mistakes, then it would have been, then I wrote it right. Because it has a flow and a rhythm. It's the way people say that it's really easy to memorize Shakespeare because it has a flow to it. And so on the day she did it and it is comma perfect to the script. It is exactly the same thing as as I wrote, you know, down to the, you know, ellipses. So uh, I think in the end, I was really happy with the way it turned out. It just seemed like a better way to get more dramatic elements in play rather than a photograph so it's a lot of these kind of prosaic decisions then you go down this road and you end up writing something and you tease it around and you say oh let's put her in the back seat or what would she say afterwards and you know you get to the end of that that uh, fight and it took me days to figure out what serena would say but i love when she says don't get upset it's bad for the baby it was like <laughs> yeah. oh my yeah. god that delivery is so was jeez so uh so it was it was practical on a lot of levels it also came at a different point in our story so that's one of the other reasons it changed.
0: I take live notes or I would take I would watch and I would kind of be like just sort of jotting down thoughts as I was watching and at that part I think my like notes are literally just like in all caps like holy shit holy shit she is really doing this oh my god she's so fucking evil like I'm just like it was a lot of I felt a lot of emotion so like when you see you know, June just unleash on her. It's so cathartic for the watcher for the viewer, because that's like what we want to say to her too. Kind of, where we're just yep. like, you are so fucking evil. Like this is You're evil. All, like and what is,
2: I like where she goes, what is wrong with you? Yeah, exactly. it's like That's what you're asking. It's like, dude, what's your problem? I mean, like how could a I, human I, do that? I walk that? into the house, you smack me in the face. I fall down And this really, Jesus Christ, what are you you doing? What are you, you're like a devil. I don't understand. You know, how do you live with yourself? So that's what you always think about. And with, with Serena, it just worked out. It worked out very well because the character of June is strong enough that she can say that out loud. And you, you believe that she would have the bravery to do it. And you also believe that Serena would let her get away with it in this one particular circumstance.
0: Yeah. I mean, were there any roads sort of like that or even like characters or, or things that happened? You know, we get we got a lot more of Emily in this than, you know, you, you obviously don't know anything about her in the book. Were there any other like places you went or th- things you thought about going down that you sort of decided not to?
2: Um, well, not that we decided not to, but that we just didn't end up having space for. I mean, one of the things about the, the book is I, I, I found that kind of it was infinitely... Um, interesting that, you know, almost any character, I mean, I, you know, I'd be very, very happy to, to do the Aunt Lydia show. I'd be very happy to do the Hannah show. I mean, what's her life like? All those kind of things. So, you know, we did have discussions and stories about all of those things about Lydia and her backstory and what it's like for the ants and them living there. And what, is, what is it like for, for, um, little girls? What's it like for little boys? What's it like for baby Angela? What, you know, how is she taking care of? What, happens there and then what what happens with the commanders when you know they go off to work you know sometimes shows like this feel a little like leave it to beaver you know dad goes off to work and you never see him till he comes home uh (laughs) and and here we we do that i do that a little because you want it to be offered its point of view and you know dad does go off to work the commander does go off to work here uh but every single one of those areas i found like i would just be thrilled to do, you know, a you know, the little America television show. I would be thrilled to do a story about the, um, the girl who doesn't speak at all. Whose character's name is Aaron. Um, just, uh, any of those things. And so I think one of the, one of the, uh, things I've always done in scripts is, is, and to, to my detriment is you know, I'd write a scene where two people are arguing and then the pizza guy comes and delivers the pizza and then he has four lines and leaves and I'd get notes saying, Well, uh rewrite the pizza guy, he's too interesting. We want to follow the pizza guy. You know, we want to do the pizza guy <laughs> show. And so I like that about I like that about handmaids is that if you get a scene with five people in it, any of those five people could be in the next scene and you'd be you would go, Oh, oh, this is interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, when you start talking about Aunt Lydia, I I sort of want to go off into a hole there because uh, I think in either the second or or the last episode we we discussed her extensively. Um, she sort of hovers over the show all over the place. She just shows up <laughs> all the time, and um, you know, one of the things I really love about Aunt Lydia is. I think she's, like, fairly, like, Serena Joy in that I... There's something... I, maybe I'm evil, but I really love her. She's, <laughs> like... She's, like... I'm, like... I I really think she, you know, plays evil in a way that forces you to, to not really... To, like, really think about what the word evil means. Um, because she's sort of mothering of the people that she tortures. Yep. And they have this weird codependent relationship with her. And so... I kept hoping we would get an Aunt Lydia backstory. I, because I, I think I said this, I basically can't imagine her having a life previously. So, have you thought it about was her?
2: Weird. I, <laughs> yeah. It was very weird. I mean, I had, we had been in the room talking about Aunt Lydia's backstory, and then I heard you guys talking about me <laughs> on, on
1: the podcast. <laughs> well, I'm just as selfish reasons, can you write one for me? I, oh, sure.
2: We would love to. I mean, and it's, uh, you know, and, and once again, it certainly, uh, it certainly has an impact on, on June, because Aunt Lydia is such a big part of her life, uh, the thing that Anne Dow does with the character, and Anne and I talked about this from the very beginning, is that you know, Aunt Lydia is not a sadist, and Aunt Lydia is not; she would rather. Uh, I I I think probably on some level she enjoys the violence, but that's not the primary uh, driver for her. She believes in this system. She, this is duty to her, and she doesn't like it, but she feels like it's very, very important for her to do it right. If she doesn't take, uh, if she doesn't take Janine's eye out, then the wife is going to kill her when she mouths off. So she's, you know, she's doing something to prevent something bad happening to her. She's, you know, be using tough love to prevent her quote girls from getting into trouble further down the line. But I don't think she sees it as anything but corrective punishment. Um, I, I think she loves, loves them and, and feels like their success is her success. Uh, I mean, I would say it's all of it's very twisted and wrongheaded, but, but I, but she has a worldview where this is what she has to do to save the world. I mean, it's God's work.
1: What you worked with Margaret Atwood, my understanding is that she's, it seems like she was pretty involved in, in it, and in it, since her source material is so good, and you did such a, you know, I think really like about the best job you can with uh, being faithful to the material while still. I mean, the ending of the show, just to be clear, is exactly what the end of the book is. And I was still like, oh, shit. Like, I I don't know why it never occurred to me that that's how it
0: was going to end. It just We didn't. literally were like, this won't, it wouldn't, they would never end it like the book. And I've read the book,
1: like, I've read the book, like, three times. And I was still like, oh, man, no, this is amazing. And, it, you know, and it's perfect because it's an ambiguous ending. It's, and you know, she literally says, is it the end or the beginning? I don't know. And it's kind of, so I. I feel like working with the source material versus, um, creating new things, you have done really well, but is, is she going to work on the second season and, and what does that look like now that you're, you are, you are kind of off the rails now, right? You've, 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 you've sort of exhausted Alfred's timeline, um, as far as the book is concerned.
2: Uh, well, uh, Margaret was very involved from the beginning, as you said. Um, we had lots and lots of, uh conversations uh, you know and and we had uh, uh, some of the bigger changes in the in the show you know the way we deal with race as opposed to the way it felt within the book uh making the commander and Serena Joy uh still in their childbearing years slightly younger um and
1: and very good looking
2: Yes and and very and very good looking although you know I don't think anybody's like now sitting around pining for the commander. It's, it just makes you it creepier. It's very sad. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's very sad. Shakespearean love is not the same. Um, but, uh, you know, those changes I talked to Margaret about extensively and also kind of just little things that, that would, wouldn't seem important, but, you know, why does she use the King James Bible, not the Geneva Bible, which is what the Puritans use? things like that where, where those conversations, that kind of picky stuff that only I would care about but the decisions I have to make we were very involved we were also just we discussed everything you know she saw she read the scripts which is a smidge nerve wracking if you can only imagine <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think I went to the bathroom that whole weekend that was <laughs> and uh, but here Margaret I was going to read your version of Handmaid Tale have a nice weekend uh,
0: <laughs> I'm like sweating just hearing you say that <laughs> yeah I
2: know it was like it was luckily she's hilarious and, and sharp and, you know, and her criticisms and her compliments are equally entertaining. I mean, she's wonderful. She's so, uh, she's such a, like a resource, you know, in the universe, she's really amazing. And, and I feel lucky to count her as my friend and, and also our working relationship has been quite strong. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that she, Uh, the book's been adapted as a play and as a ballet and as an opera and as a movie. And so uh, she's in a unique position of being an expert on the handmaid's tale being adapted. There is no other book I've ever worked on where someone's an expert in that. So she was very good at saying, Oh, that probably won't work because it didn't work here. Or this thing might change this way or this, is what this person did. Or we talked about that. So she was very open, more open than I was to changes. Certainly (laughs) because I, you know, I wanted every single comma and every moment from the book to be, you know, in the show because I, you know, because I like it a lot. Uh, moving forward, I think she—it's—it's uh, Margaret's vision, it's Margaret's character, it's her voice, it's her world, and especially being her world makes it a conversation you can keep having. Uh, so it—it it, that creation is so much the foundation for the show that. The conversations we're having with Margaret are about that. I mean, she's very interested in how we've extrapolated out the show and the world. Uh, she's been involved in all the discussions, but she thinks it's fascinating to hear where everybody goes and she's continuing in on that conversation. So she's, uh, so there's lot. there's not quite as many questions that I have, like you did this in the book and why, as I did last year at the beginning, but I'm just running stuff past her and seeing what she thinks. Uh, you know, what do you think the colonies would be like? What would they wear in the colonies? Do you think they would kill them or just let them die? What if they get sick? Do they take care of them? You know, you start to get into, you know down a rabbit hole of questions. And luckily, I have, you know, one other tenant of the same asa- insane asylum I reside in, and that's Margaret. <laughs> and Lizzie now, and you guys, and a lot of other people.
0: If you ever need consulting, don't worry. We're here anytime.
2: Oh, good. Excellent.
0: <laughs> okay. So my fu-
1: <laughs> my final question is um, one you may not want to answer, but I would ask anyway: Is Janine dead yet?
2: <laughs> uh, uh, is Janine is Janine dead? Yeah. Uh, well, when not as far as Offred knows, and so not as okay. far as we know.
1: <laughs> I mean, I don't. But I,
2: I, Mad- Madeline's going to be in season two.
1: Wonderful. Um,
2: and and we have the great benefit of being able to have characters, if they do die, even if Alfred died, because we don't know what happens to Alfred after this. I mean, that van could stop and they could execute her, you know, just because, uh, you could still, the show in flashback works quite well. I mean, most of the book is flashback. Um, so, uh, you know, that doesn't mean she doesn't die. Um, you know, I, I think it's pretty safe to say everybody does eventually.
0: <laughs> um, I have a, a certain—not not quite the same question, but also probably an annoying, an annoying question for us to maybe end on. Um, I'm having this debate right now with a friend of mine who just finished the show. Um, and our debate currently—and I, I figure I might as well ask you because if I, if you agree with me, then I can report back and tell her that I'm right. And if you don't, I'll just pretend that I never asked. Um, which is that, like, who do you think is the most evil character in the show?
2: Hannah. Um, uh, present company excluded. Um, uh, I think that, I, I think the commander is, I think the commander, um, in a lot of ways is the, is, is the character who I think has the most to answer for. Um, I think he's, um, letting so many of his worst Uh, personality traits guide him and that uniform he's wearing is like the ring in Lord of the Rings. I mean, it just, it's turning him into, into like a demented, you know, devil, you know, the the power of it is, is corrupting him. You know, the fact that he can snap his fingers and anything can happen. Um, And, and, you know, his dominion over his sovereignty, over women's bodies that he just accepts Um, and then pushes and pushes and pushes. I, I think he's just, to me, um, uh, you know, there's a line in the book about you know how easy it is to invent a humanity for someone, um, and I th- I think we've been looking at that as both advice to in the book, but advice to the writers, which is don't invent a humanity for a character because they might not have one. Just follow what they do and let the audience decide whether they have a humanity or not. Um, but as that ties back to the commander, for me at least, I I I don't think it's I don't think he does have a humanity down there. Um, I think he, he has the possibility of regaining it, but I think he certainly lost sight of it.
1: And he seems like he's getting worse, right? That's not just me. I mean, he, he seemed kind of like dopey at first. And like, I was kind of like, he doesn't seem that bad. And by the end I was like, this guy's the Joker. (laughs) Like He's like really bad.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the absolute power corrupting. Absolutely. And it's, uh, especially when it comes to, to male female relationships and sex, you know, there are, you know, it's very difficult once someone gets power for them to not wield it too much, you know, it just, it's just too tempting. And so, you know, I, I don't know whether he's, I don't know whether he's the Joker. Um, but, um, he, uh, I, I think that he, as I said before, he has a lot to answer to answer for he, he, um, treats both Serena Joy and, and Offred, uh, in ways that are so thoughtless for them that, you know, you know, he's selfish. Um, and, uh, that selfishness in this society is a life and death decision. It's such a, it's, it's, it's so thoughtless about how other people are going through the world. And I think he's, you know, blind on purpose. And for that, he has to answer uh but is he getting worse i don't know the situation is getting more and more complicated i think i think the problem is he's in a position where he can't it, you know the handmade systems never going to work out for him he needs an emotional connection to get an erection so i mean it's and he can't and he set up a system where he can't have an emotional connection And so he's never going to be able to, it's never going to be good. And eventually it's just going to get worse and worse. I mean, he's going to grab more and more from the handmaid until he, the handmaid, Serena, or all of them get into trouble. And then he'll move on to the next one because he's untouchable. So I think that that's the problem is that it's an inevitable tailspin from the very first moment in the pilot when he says, nice to meet you. There's the beginning of the whole problem. Is that he needs that connection?
0: Yeah, I feel like maybe he's not getting worse. We're just learning more about him.
2: Yes, that's exactly. Just like just like the, you know, the our partners in our romantic life. As we get to know them, they turn into horror.
1: <laughs> You're like, Why did I marry you? <laughs>
2: Why did I marry you? You wanna explain that to me again?
0: <laughs> um, I know you probably have to go. Laura, was there anything else you wanted to touch on? Uh, no, I was just gonna make another comment, which
1: is what the thing that I think really rings true about the entire world is not just that like Luke uh, is a bad driver or that he doesn't know how to shoot a gun, but that that what we're looking at are sort of normal people. they're like in many cases very intelligent people, but they're you know they don't know how to shoot guns and they don't know how to like drive really fast and get away from people and like they're they're the ways that you, I've watched those characters like. The fact that Janine sort of is has lost it a little bit or, you know, like the different like things that people do in the face of these like horrible adversarial times rings very true to me. And we're not looking at like people who are superheroes, right? They're regular people forced into a really shitty new system. And so, I mean, that's, I mean, that's not really a question. It's more of a comment, but I've... Um, I've sort of thought that from the beginning of the show. And it's not something that's really there in the book. I mean, it is with with Offred a little bit because you have this sense of her sort of just doing what she can to survive. But because the other characters aren't really um, painted that much in the book, I feel like the show has, um, has done something which most, I think, TV shows like sort of fail to do at some point when you have like, you know, the world ends and then all of a sudden, you know, all of the people know how to like survive. And it's like, actually most people wouldn't, like their glasses would be broken and they would fall down and then you'd break your arm. And like, that's what happens. And I think um, that's what makes it so terrifying to me is that I know that if something horrible happened, if there was a zombie attack or like a, you know, like some kind of fallout situation, um, I would either die immediately,
2: or, <laughs> or, or wish after, you had,
1: or wish I had. Yeah, because yeah. I would just be like, I'm done. I I can't do this. I'm out.
2: Uh, well, thank <laughs> you. I'm completely with you. I mean, I'm. Uh, um, I'm sorry. I man interrupted you. Go on. No,
1: I, I I wanted to hear from you rather than listen to myself talk for another five minutes. <laughs>
2: Um, uh, well, um, I, I feel the same way. I mean, one of the most important things to me is that she feels like they feel like real people, not characters in a TV show. Um, they, you know, and so we, I, I mean, I, I think they're just as hapless as, as I would be. They, they have lots and lots of skills. None of the things that they're being asked to do are in their set. Um, you know, at the beginning of the show, Alfred is just just capable of surviving and keeping her sanity. Those are her only two goals. Um, uh, you know, and the first season is really about the conflict between, or the, the, the pull between living and surviving, you know, it says, I'm going to survive, but is she going to live? And when she gets the opportunity to do things that actually give her a life, do they reduce her chances of surviving? You know, sleeping with Nick is a really good example. It's living, but it isn't surviving. It's a bad idea for surviving. It's a great idea for living. Um, and But I don't want... Uh, so I want to make sure that the characters in the show feel like real people because I want the decisions that they make to feel like the decisions you would make. And, and that way you don't... Hopefully you don't beat up Offred for making mistakes because honestly, 85% of the time, her decision is a wrong decision. She doesn't have enough information to make a right decision. It's not that she's making a bad decision. She just has to make a decision a lot of the time. And a lot of those things are, you know, the, the my, one of my favorite scenes in the whole series has been that very first time they play Scrabble. And, you know, everything that the commander says seems like, a, you know, a version of it puts the lotion on its skin or it gets the hose again. <laughs> you know, It yeah. all sounds so creepy. But from his point of view, it's just I want to play a game. And she's thinking, you know, ranch hand and naughty sheep. What the hell's the game? (laughs) you um, You know, is the game cut off my fingers? What's the game? And she plays all of that. But what I love about it is that she's so careful and you feel like, Uh, she has no special skill at making her navigating the situation. She's just being super careful, like I would be. And so she waits enough time before answering that. I'm hoping that you as an audience member go, should I say this or this? Should I say this or this? So you actually are going through the, the, the Terminator, you know, like, fuck you asshole list that comes up, (laughs) you know, you're, you're, you're thinking about what you're going to say and going through all the possibilities, just like she does. She's very intelligent, very observant, very strategic, and she's getting much better at kind of acting when the opportunity comes along, um, to be, you know, to, to, to leap more quickly to, um, but you know, I want her to be as intelligent, as observant, um, you know, as brave, as reckless and as stupid as we are. Um, like I said, once it stops being a real person, it stops being scary. It, it, it just, you know, so, you know, there are often, there are tons of things over the years that I've done on TV shows. And, um, but I really don't want these guys doing anything that, uh, you, that would ring untrue that someone like that could do. Now people do beat them up. You know, I've heard, Uh, you know, on uh, in reviews and and on podcasts, not just yours, where people say, well, why can't they do this? And it's because, you know, some people can, some people can't. I mean, I've shot a gun a couple of times, but I don't know that I could load a revolver. I don't know how to get the bullets out, or at least I don't know how to do it under stress, you know, and, you know, a revolver just getting that revolver. I mean, we didn't make this up. We went to the gun range and they gave us a revolver. and We tried to figure out how to load it on our own. I mean, we did that, because that's the show and it's not easy and it's hard to, and it's not like a parent, how it works. Um, and so, uh, you want all those things, those moments, uh, and you know, our mantra is always what would really happen. Let's start there. What would really happen? What would they really do in real life? You know, if the conversation, if you're, you know, one of my favorite scenes in the whole show is the conversation between June and Luke before they go off and sleep together. Um, and, I just felt like it was the conversation you have before you go off to sleep together. You know, it's the, well, we're not going to do this conversation, but let's describe it in great detail so that we can pretend to get it out of our system. Uh, it was wonderful, and uh, but it was very much what would really happen, what's this conversation really going to be about.
1: Um, so I just wanted to thank you for doing this, um, and we're both, I think, really looking forward to the next season, and I think yes. we're going to do the podcast again next year, Woo. and so we would love to have you on, um, it was interesting to experience, like, to once I realized that you were listening, um, <laughs> it definitely made me think, like, I don't listen, I, I don't listen to the podcast after they're done, I just motor mouth through them and then never listen to them again, because <laughs> I hate my voice, um, and so... So uh, I don't think it changed what I did, but I definitely um, am like it's I, it's amazing that you were listening, and I think that been – I was been, nervous
2: about telling you because I didn't want to change the show. I still wanted to, so I was nervous. Oh, don't about worry, you we're both huge listening.
1: assholes. <laughs> 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 I'm oh, I'm generally open to adaptation, but you know there if the, a bad one is really bad. So it's been super interesting to watch it. I cannot wait for the next season, and I hope that you will um, come back next year.
2: Yeah. Um, um, I will. I will try to. But thank you guys so much for for everything. For paying such close attention, it makes me very happy. It makes oh, my lighter heart sing. Uh, so um, I. Uh, I don't know what to do now.
0: <laughs> to do. Uh, I'm Rose Eveleth I'm Laura June.
2: I'm Bruce Miller.
0: Under his eye. Under his eye.
2: Under his eye.